welcome to another episode of the APOG podcast. I'm the show's host and creator, Morgan Bechtel, and today we'll be learning about STIs or sexually transmitted infections. Sexually transmitted infections have been around for as long as people have been walking the earth and doing the deed, yet the stigma surrounding them has only recently started to change. For as common as these infections are, many patients and providers alike are uncomfortable discussing the details of STIs and safe sexual practices. I can't tell you how many times a patient has come into my office for a completely different complaint only to say, um, oh, by the way, I have this uh, rash I want you to look at. Sexual health is a taboo subject for many, but it doesn't have to be. Today on the podcast, we'll not only review the most common STIs, but we'll also discuss how to talk to patients or even family members or friends about safe sexual practices using inclusive, non-judgmental language. So gird your loins as we tackle the ins and outs of sexually transmitted infections. Before getting started, I want to point out that when I'm referring to male or female symptoms, I'm referring to an individual's biological sex based on their physical anatomy and what genitals they have, i.e. penis and testes for male and vagina, uterus, and ovaries for female. Now, it's also important to note that a person can have both male and female genitals in a condition called intersex, and that their presentation may follow or vary from the descriptions below. Now, I want to point out that I avoid using the terms women and men, as this often refers to an individual's gender, which is how a person self-identifies, and has nothing to do with what genitals they have. By using the appropriate terminology, we're not only respecting the individual, but we're creating a safe space for which we can discuss an often delicate subject. Before diving into the details of various STIs, let's talk a little bit about the risk factors for infection. As their name entails, sexually transmitted infections are transmitted via sexual intercourse. This means that any possible body part that can be used during intercourse can potentially become infected or transmit an infection. It's not our business as healthcare providers to know the details of our patient's sex lives, but it is important for us to know just what kinds of sex the patient is having, whether that be oral, vaginal, and or anal, to know what areas of the body are at risk for infection. It makes sense that the more sexual partners you have, the greater your risk is of contracting an STI. However, abstinence is not the only way you can protect yourself from these infections. When thinking about safe sex, we're often drawn to the image of a group of high schoolers, bananas in hand, watching their gym teacher demonstrate how to properly use an external condom. While barrier methods like condoms and dental dams are an important part of STI prevention, it's not the only component of safe sex. Safe sex involves having an open, honest conversation about sexual boundaries with your partner or partners. It also involves annual STI testing or testing after every new sexual partner. The USPSTF, or the United States Preventative Services Task Force, recommends that all sexually active individuals under the age of 24 years old be screened for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Now, individuals over the age of 25 who are considered to be at high risk meaning that they have multiple sex partners or participate in unprotected sex, should also be screened. We'll start with the Mac Daddy of diseases, the main man or woman on campus, the most common STI around, chlamydia. Now, named after the gram-negative obligate intracellular parasite for which it stems, chlamydia trichomonas, this organism is the most common STI. 
often the cause of many ailments, including cervicitis, salpingitis, and pelvic inflammatory disease in females, as well as epididymitis, prostatitis, and urethritis in males. Chlamydia can be completely asymptomatic, or it can result in a variety of symptoms, including purulent vaginal or penile discharge, pain with sex, or abdominal pain. It's important to note that chlamydia cannot be distinguished from gonorrhea based on symptoms alone. This is often why practitioners decide to treat prophylactically for both gonorrhea and chlamydia. In order to diagnose chlamydia and distinguish it from gonorrhea, NAT, or nucleic acid amplification testing, is preferred. But PCR testing can also be done on samples taken from vaginal swabs in females or a first catch urine in males. So you've swabbed your patient or collected their pee, but their results haven't come back yet. Remember, most tests, especially cultures, take a few days to return. So what do you do now? It's personal preference, but most providers often opt to treat the patient prophylactically with antibiotics. Standard treatment for chlamydia is a single dose of one gram of azithromycin or 100 milligrams of doxycycline twice a day for seven days. It's important to remember that in women of reproductive age, you must get a negative pregnancy test before starting antibiotics as the use of doxycycline in the first trimester impacts bone growth and teeth development in the fetus. If chlamydia is the main character, the Batman of the STI universe, if you will, then gonorrhea is the Robin. For if you have one, you can usually expect the other one to be close by. Considered the second most common STI, gonorrhea gets its name from the grand negative diplococcus for which it stems, Neisseria gonorrhea. Now you may have heard gonorrhea nicknamed the clap before. This term supposedly originated from the French word clapier, meaning brothel, or it may have originated from the medieval treatment for gonorrhea in males, which involved a clapping of the hands firmly together on the penis in order to expel the abnormal discharge, a not effective and probably pretty painful approach to treatment. Females often present with a thick yellow-green vaginal discharge that may or may not be associated with fever, abdominal pain, or pain with sex. Males are often asymptomatic or experience more milder symptoms like burning with urination, increased urinary frequency, or possibly hematuria. Gonorrhea can present with extragenital symptoms like pharyngitis, conjunctivitis, or prostatitis. It's very rare, approximately 2% of cases, for gonorrhea to become disseminated, meaning it becomes a systemic infection. A patient with a disseminated infection may present with fever, chills, joint pains, inflammation of the tendons, or a rash. There are several ways for which we can diagnose a gonococcal infection, the test of choice, once again, being NAT testing, or nucleic acid amplification testing. Like in chlamydia, samples for NAT can be taken via urine sample or urethral or endocervical swabs. A gram stain in culture can also be done, which is especially helpful if you need to determine antibiotic resistance. But it's not considered as sensitive a test as NAT testing. If you're concerned about a possible disseminated infection, samples of blood and synovial fluid should be taken and cultured. How do we treat gonorrhea, you may ask? Remember how I said gonorrhea and chlamydia are the wonder twins of STIs, meaning it's hard to have one without the other? Well, it's for this very reason that we co-treat for both gonorrhea and chlamydia. For suspected or diagnosed gonorrhea, patients are treated with a single IM injection in the glute of 500 milligrams of ceftriaxone 
or one gram if the patient weighs over 330 pounds. And patients are co-treated for chlamydia with the course of doxycycline. Because these two conditions cannot be clinically differentiated, we co-treat to ensure the patient has received appropriate antibiotic coverage. The next stop on our STI journey is a little infection called trichomonas, referring to the causative organism, a flagellated protozoan called trichomonas vaginalis. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I say or read this word, I always get the song It's Tricky by Run DMC stuck in my head. You know, the one that goes, it's tricky, 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 tricky. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, that's been stuck in my head all afternoon recording this. Along with this pop hit, there are some other facts that you should also keep lodged in your brain. Females with trichomonas are more likely to be symptomatic than males, often complaining of vaginal pruritus, dyspareunia, dysuria, and abdominal pain. Now, during PA school, you may remember learning that a strawberry cervix, or the presence of punctate hemorrhages on the cervix, as well as frothy yellow-green vaginal discharge, is associated with a trichomonas infection. These features can certainly indicate a trichomonas infection and are often included in questions on EOR exams, but relying solely on these features for diagnosis in the real world is not recommended. The frothy yellow-green discharge only really occurs in approximately 10 to 30% of cases, and the strawberry cervix is only seen in approximately 2% of cases. So definitely don't use this as your only means of diagnosis. There are several ways in which to diagnose a trichomonas infection. During the exam, you can take a sample of the discharge and test it with a piece of pH paper. Remember, the normal pH of vaginal fluids should be between 4.0 and 4.5. But in trichomonas, the pH will be greater than 4.5. So it's going to be more basic than acidic. Now, you can also perform what's called a saline wet mount, meaning you put a sample of the discharge on a slide with some saline and look at it under the microscope for these modile flagellated protozoa. The saline wet mount, while fun for science nerds like me, is not very sensitive. Only about 60 to 70% of culture confirmed cases show the protozoa. So the most definite way to diagnose trichomonas is with that NAT testing or with culture of the vaginal or penile discharge. Once the diagnosis of trichomonas is made, the preferred treatment is 500 milligrams of metronidazole POBID for seven days. It is important to note that topical metronidazole is not recommended in the treatment of trichomonas as its cure rate is far lower than an oral preparation. What about women who are pregnant or breastfeeding, you may be asking? Well, while some of the medication is secreted in the breast milk, it's generally considered safe for use when pregnant or breastfeeding. It's also important to note that patients are generally recommended to avoid alcohol while taking this medication due to its disulfiram reaction, meaning you know it can cause nausea, vomiting, headaches, think like hangover symptoms. It's also recommended that a patient's sexual partner be tested and treated and that sexual contact is avoided until the full course of antibiotics is completed. Like many STIs, a test of cure is recommended anywhere from two weeks to three months after diagnosis to ensure the efficacy of treatment. Now let's talk about the most notorious of STIs, syphilis. This infection has gone by many names over the years, such as bad blood, the French pox, not to be confused with smallpox, the great imitator for its variety of signs and symptoms, and Louise venerea, meaning venereal disease. Now the current title syphilis originated from a French poem entitled Syphilis 
Seed Marbus Gallicus, or Syphilis, the French Disease, written by Italian physician and poet Girolamo Francastoro in 1530. The poem tells the story of a shepherd named Syphilis who blamed the sun god for the recent drought that plagued his village and ruined his crops. In response, the sun god cursed the man with a terrible disease, which now bears his name. Surprisingly, I know, but Syphilis was not created by a vengeful sun god. This infection is in fact caused by the gram-negative spirochete, Treponema pallidum. This infection occurs more commonly in males than females and can be transmitted sexually as well as vertically, meaning from mother to baby in utero. There actually has been an exponential increase in congenital syphilis here in the U.S., which is why ACOG started advocating for increased screening during pregnancy. Now it's recommended that women are screened at the beginning of pregnancy, at 28 weeks gestation, and again at delivery, especially in high-risk patients. Syphilitic infections are broken down into three stages, primary, secondary, and tertiary. Primary syphilis is the first stage after the initial infection, with symptoms appearing within two to three weeks of inoculation. This stage is characterized by the presence of a painless ulcer with rolled borders, called a chancre. The chancre itself doesn't require any treatment and will often heal on its own within four to five weeks. Next, we have secondary syphilis. Starting approximately 8 to 12 weeks after the initial infection, the second stage of syphilis begins. This stage is often characterized by a reddish-brown maculopapular rash that covers the entire body, including the scalp, palms, and soles. This is a very important detail as there's very few infections that cause a rash to appear on the palms and the soles. During this stage, the patient can also develop fevers, malaise, generalized lymphadenopathy, mucosal ulceration, and painless broad wart-like lesions on the anogenital region or oral mucosa. This stage will resolve on its own in about two to six weeks if left untreated. In very rare cases, the widespread vasculitis seen during this stage can result in hepatitis, iritis, nephritis, and neurological problems. More info on neurosyphilis to come later. It's important to remember that this is very uncommon, occurring in less than 10% of cases. Without treatment, symptoms will resolve on their own in three to six weeks, but patients may have relapses. And this is less likely to occur after one year since symptom onset. Next, we have tertiary syphilis. Tertiary or late syphilis is the third and final stage of syphilis. This is, of course, the most severe form, resulting from long-term, often decades, of untreated syphilis. This stage is characterized by severe neurological, cardiovascular, and dermatological manifestations. Neurosyphilis often occurs when T. pallidum infects the CNS, infecting the spinal cords and the brain. Now, infection of the spinal cord leads to a condition called tabes dorsalis, which is characterized by ataxia, lightning pains in the muscles, loss of bladder and bowel control, absent reflexes, a positive Romberg sign, and Argyle-Robinson pupils. Now, if you're asking yourself, what the heck is Romberg sign and what are Argyle-Robinson pupils? Well, let me remind you that Argyle-Robinson pupils are bilaterally small pupils that don't constrict when exposed to bright light, but do constrict when focused on a nearby object. And that the Romberg sign is when a patient can stand with feet together, hands at the side with eyes open, but can't do so when the eyes are closed. This is often a sign of sensory ataxia and proprioceptive defects. When syphilis attacks the brain, this often starts as personality changes. 
headaches, issues with memory, but may develop into worsening confusion, mood changes, seizures, and even transient seizures. Aside from neurosyphilis, patients with tertiary syphilis can also develop vasculitis of the large vessels, often the proximal aorta. And gumma, which is a soft tumor-like growth with a necrotic center that can affect almost any tissue, including internal organs, but usually impacts the skin and bone. So how do we diagnose syphilis? Well, the most common initial testing is to order a serum RPR, or rapid plasma reagent, or VDRL, which stands for Venereal Disease Research Laboratory Slide, which will come back as either positive or negative. It's important to note that false positives can occur if a patient has a co-occurring infection like Epstein-Barr virus, hepatitis, or HIV, or has an autoimmune disease like lupus. If the RPR comes back positive, the next step in confirming diagnosis would be to order a TPPA, a treponema pallidum particle agglutination test, or a fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption test, AFTA-ABS. Now, I'm not going to go into the detail of how these tests are performed, because if I did, this episode would be like four hours long. So just know that if either of these come back positive, then the patient does in fact have active syphilis. Now, once diagnosed with syphilis, treatment is dictated by what stage the patient is in. In primary or secondary syphilis, a single dose of penicillin G 2.4 million units IM dose is given. In tertiary syphilis, with normal CSF examination, meaning no neurosyphilis, penicillin 2.4 million units IM is given weekly for three weeks. Now, in the case of neurosyphilis, an aqueous crystalline solution of penicillin G, 3 to 4 million units, is given IV every four hours for 10 to 14 days. Now we're going to shift gears and talk about herpes. Known as the gift that keeps on giving, herpes simplex virus is thought to have infected approximately 66% of the world's population. There are two main types of herpes simplex virus, or HSV. HSV1, which most people refer to as cold sores as it predominantly affects the mouth, and HSV2, which generally involves the anogenital region. Now, transmission occurs through direct contact with mucosa or secretions of an infected person, i.e. via kissing or anal oral vaginal sex. Most HSV1 infections occur in childhood and are transmitted by family members or loved ones who are positive. An initial HSV infection presents as a viral prodrome with fever, malaise, pharyngitis, and is often dismissed as some other childhood viral illness. It's only with subsequent flares that the patient develops the characteristic painful vesicular lesions on the lips or anogenital region. Now, a majority of patients with HSV infections are asymptomatic. In fact, retrospective studies show that only approximately 20 to 25% of patients with documented HSV infections had a history of vesicular lesions. Because so many patients are asymptomatic, we can't really rely on the history and physical exam alone for diagnosis. A zinc smear can be done in office. This requires a provider to gently unroof the suspicious lesion, then apply the scrapings from the lesion to a clean slide, which is then sent off to be stained and tested under light microscopy. Now, given the ease and efficiency of viral cultures and PCR testing, this test is really rarely used anymore. Generally, PCR testing is considered the gold standard of diagnosis. Once diagnosis is made, treatment generally consists of oral acyclovir with variable treatment lengths based on immunocompetence, usually from 7 to 10 days all the way up to 14 to 21 days. Now, it's important to note that despite its prevalence and relatively benign nature, a herpes diagnosis can be very devastating to a patient. 
the mere idea that they have an STI that cannot be quote-unquote cured and will be a lifelong condition is an understandably big adjustment. There may be fear of passing it on to their partner or child, anxiety over who they might have gotten it from, or fear that their sex life as they know it may be over. Now, some patients can become profoundly depressed or even suicidal. That's why it's so important to stress to your patients just how common this condition is. Again, approximately one in five people ages 12 and older have it. There are even herpes support groups available for those who need it. Like all STIs, we encourage patients to tell their sexual partners about their infection so they can be tested and treated if needed. It's important to note that HSV2 infections can spread even if the patient is asymptomatic. Barrier methods like condoms can reduce the risk of transmission, but not entirely. Patients should avoid having sexual intercourse, kissing, or sharing drinks when they're experiencing an HSV outbreak. Last but not least, we're going to talk about the Goliath of all STIs, which is HIV, or human immunodeficiency virus. Now, we could spend a whole episode on HIV alone, but for today's purposes, we'll just be covering the basics. HIV is a single-stranded RNA retrovirus that attacks the immune system by binding with CD4 T helper cells. Now, these are cells in the immune system that help coordinate the immune response to an invader. Think bacteria, virus, whatever it may be. When HIV enters the CD4 cells for reproduction, it inserts its own RNA and uses an enzyme called reverse transcriptase to convert its RNA into proviral DNA. This DNA is then inserted into the DNA of the CD4 cells. So when that cell replicates, its DNA is coded to make more of the HIV virus. Pretty sneaky stuff. Now, in response, the body makes more CD4 cells, and eventually over time, HIV destroys the CD4 cells faster than the immune system can make new ones. Once the CD4 count drops below 200 per cubic millimeter, a patient's HIV has developed into AIDS, or Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. More on this later. Now, there are two types of HIV. HIV-1, which is the most common type and found mostly in Eastern countries, and HIV-2, which is rarer and more commonly found in the Western population. HIV is transmitted several ways. Most commonly, it's spread through sexual intercourse. Again, oral, anal, vaginal sex. But it can also be spread parenterally, think needle sharing, and vertically through transmission from mom to baby. However, with the invention of new HIV drugs, this is becoming less and less common. Patients affected with HIV first experience what's called acute retroviral syndrome. This occurs roughly two to six weeks after initial infection, and patients usually present with flu-like symptoms. Think cough, sore throat, fever, chills. Unfortunately, this is often mistaken for other viral illnesses like mono or influenza. Symptoms usually last about two to four weeks and resolve on their own. During this time, the HIV virus replicates rapidly and the CD4 count decreases until the body's immune system is able to recover and decrease the viral load. Now, when the viral load is very high, the patient is highly infectious. Once the body's immune system kicks in and the viral load declines, we enter what's called the latency period, where the virus is still replicating, but at very low levels. What this means is that over time, the CD4 count gradually declines in number and the viral load starts to creep up. It's important to note that during this time, the virus is still transmittable. When the T-cells drop between 200 and 500 per cubic millimeter, patients start experiencing symptoms again. This includes lymphadenopathy, hairy leukoplakia, which again, 
If you remember in school, that's the white patch on the tongue. Patients can also have persistent or resistant oral or vulvovaginal candidiasis. Again, once the T-cell count drops below that 200 per cubic millimeter value, then HIV has developed into AIDS. This is usually accompanied by fever, night sweats, fatigue, and chronic diarrhea. There are also certain AIDS-defining conditions, such as recurrent bacterial infections, pneumocystis pneumonia, Kaposi sarcoma, and certain viral and bacterial infections like cytomegalovirus and mycobacterium avium complex. These illnesses that a healthy immune system would otherwise be able to fight off often lead to disability and death in patients with AIDS. So who's tested for HIV? Well, the CDC recommends routine screening for anyone ages 13 to 64 who are considered to be at higher risk. Now, what does higher risk mean? That means multiple sexual partners, someone who has a new sexual partner, people who practice what's considered quote-unquote risky sexual practices, or high risks of occupational exposure. Now, screening is also performed in persons who are initiating tuberculosis treatment or who are pregnant. There are several ways to test for HIV, including rapid tests, which produce results in about 15 to 20 minutes, and ELISA testing, which is short for enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, which looks for antibodies from samples taken from the blood, oral swabs, or urine. Now, results of this test can take up to about a week to return. General screening tests is the antibody antigen test, and it's good at detecting early infection. It's important to note that there is a window period during which a person has HIV, but a screening test may return negative. The average window period length is about two to eight weeks, although some people take longer to develop the antibodies. If the initial screening test is positive, then an antibody confirmatory test like a Western blot is performed. After diagnosis, a patient with HIV will need an initial workup, which should include a medical history, including date and the source of infection, sexual history, substance use history, and basic lab work, including a CD4 count, a CBC with diff, CMP, lipids, RPR, again for syphilis, hepatitis A, B, and C serologies, as well as testing for toxoplasmosis, CMV, and HLA B27, and tuberculosis via PBD testing. It's also recommended that patients receive the following vaccinations, including the pneumovax, the annual flu, as well as hepatitis A and B vaccines. Once diagnosed, all patients should be treated with antiretroviral therapy, or ART therapy, regardless of what their CD4 count is. ART therapy includes many different antiviral medications that work in a variety of ways to suppress the virus to undetectable levels. And undetectable means untransmissible meaning the person infected with HIV cannot spread it to another individual via sexual contact. It's important to note that this does not apply to breastfeeding or injection drug use. Someone diagnosed early in their infection with HIV who takes their antiviral medication and maintains undetectable viral load can live a near normal life expectancy. Well, that about wraps it up for me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on sexually transmitted infections. Sex is an important part of the human experience, and it's our job as healthcare providers to work on destigmatizing these conversations to ensure that patients are having healthy and safe sex. I'm hoping to have a follow-up episode in the future that dives into sexual violence, how to screen patients, and how to intervene in a safe, supportive way. Until then, you can tune in next time where I will be sitting down and talking to PA, sexual and reproductive health advocate, political candidate, author, and world traveler, Sharon Gerard. 
You can find all of the resources for this episode in the show notes, as well as all the links to our episodes on APOG's website, www.paobgyn.org. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere podcasts are found. You can also follow APOG on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at APAOG to stay up to date on all the cool things we're up to. And lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a difference in our visibility, and it would mean the world to me. Well, that's it. Again, (laughs) that's the end of my pandering. Until next time, stay safe, tell someone you love them, and bring a little kindness into the world. Goodbye.